Welcome to the Title Run Podcast. I'm your host, David Bethay. Coming to you today from Citizens Bank Ballpark, where we just watched Bobby Bonilla pick up his latest $1 million check from the New York Mets. Bonilla last played for the Mets in 1999 and will receive $1 million payments every year from 2011 through 2035, when he will be a ripe 72 years old. Man, it's got to be good to be a pro athlete. But if you're new to the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. You can also interact with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sports or on Twitter at Sports, or you can always email us at Sports at gmail.com. So with college football players returning to campus in the last few weeks, we thought it'd be a good time to pick up on a few notes around the college football scene, specifically focusing on the University of Georgia and their extraordinarily crowded quarterback room. We'll also drop in a few thoughts on Cam Newton and his newsworthy signing with the New England Patriots. So it's no secret that the University of Georgia has recruited at a very elite level since Kirby Smart uh, got to campus. And a lot of that has to do with the tripling of the recruiting budget, which put them up near the very top of college football. And the results have been recruiting that matches the best programs in college football. The two positions where this is probably most evident are at running back and quarterback where the Bulldogs continue to stockpile top-level recruits at both positions. Now, stockpiling high-profile running backs isn't necessarily a new thing. Georgia's been doing that for years, even prior to Kirby Smart's arrival. And schools like Alabama have done that. And the thing is, running backs can share the load. They can share carries. They can save hits. They can even fill different roles with different skill sets. But it's different when you come to quarterback because, at the end of the day, there's only one football. And there's only one guy taking the snap from under center. So you don't typically see elite quarterbacks line up to play at a school full of other elite quarterbacks. So we're going to take a few minutes to try to make sense of some of what's going on at UJ, why they're targeting some of the transfer prospects they have, who they're signing out of high school, and how all of these elite quarterback prospects fit together in the big picture of the next five years of UGA football. So it was the decision of Justin Fields to transfer to Ohio State that really set off a series of dominoes with UGA's quarterback situation. It was always a possibility that Jake Fromm would leave after his junior year, and the plan was you have Justin Fields step in as a junior, start for a year or two, and continue your elite quarterback play. We all saw what Justin Fields became, and he apparently thought he was good enough to not sit another year behind Jake Fromm, and based on how things went for him at Ohio State, it appears that he was correct. But with Fields gone, there was a clear void to step in behind Jake Fromm, and so UJ goes out and flips Ohio State commit Dewan Mathis to come to Athens. So essentially they trade Mathis for, for Fields. Mathis shows up as an early enrollee, starts working out, and then has a brain procedure that cost him his entire freshman year, and at one point it was unclear if he would ever even play football again. So now you're left with Stetson Bennett being the backup and no clear backup plan for if Jake Fromm leaves for the draft. Of course, Jake Fromm does leave, and UGA fills that void by going out and signing graduate transfer Jamie Newman from Wake Forest. So let's take a second and break down Jamie Newman for those of you that may not have seen him. Talk about his strengths, the concerns you might have, and the bottom line for what fans can expect for him in 2020. So at the top of Newman's strength is definitely his physical profile. Newman's listed at 6'4", 230 pounds, and he is a rocked up to 30. 
When you watch him run, he runs like an old school Mike Allstott level fullback, and he absolutely punishes people. So his physical profile, his running ability, because he is a good runner, and his arm strength are probably the three things that top his physical skill set. And when we talk about his running ability, Newman is not a home run threat. He's not a guy that's going to break 16, 7-yard runs, but he is an absolute demon in short yardage. The first Jamie Newman highlight I saw was him absolutely blasting an inside linebacker from North Carolina on the goal line, stepping on the kid's chest and running over him into the end zone. It was just like, okay, this dude's for real. So one of the areas of value that he will add for UJ will be in short yardage and goal line. And I'd be shocked if he doesn't come up with at least 8 to 10 rushing touchdowns, as well as helping convert on third down and short yardage situations. And again, Newman's the kind of guy that's going to scramble out of the pocket, get 10 yards, and then step out of bounds. Okay, He's not looking to go 70 yards. And he's not going to run away from a lot of people. I would guess he's probably a 4'7 to 4'8, 40-yard dash, not like a Justin Fields or Cam Newton who are running 4'5, 4'6. But he is a good runner and has a ton of experience in an RPO-heavy offense at Wake Forest where Newman would ride mesh points sometimes two yards in the line of scrimmage and then pull the ball and throw a slant or whatever the RPO route was. So he's very well-versed in that area of the game, and it'll be interesting to see how new UJ offensive coordinator Todd Munkin chooses to use that skill set in designing an offense around Newman. Newman threw 26 touchdowns and 11 interceptions last year, and he played in an offense at Wake Forest that had very, very little NFL talent, if any. He had a really good wide receiver named Sage Surratt, who was probably going to play on Sundays. But other than that, it was about what you'd expect from Wake Forest football. Now, they started off 7-1 and one last year and were actually ranked in the bottom of the top 25 before finishing 1-4 and four in the last five games against the better part of their schedule. And that leads to one of the concerns that I personally had about Newman, and I was very high on him, but he has a severe lack of production against high-level competition. Without getting too deep into his stats, not to bore the audience, but you look at his games against Virginia Tech, 16-35, of 35, two touchdowns, two picks. Clemson, 6-14, of 14, no touchdowns, two picks. Syracuse, 6-13, no touchdowns, one pick. And then in the bowl game against Michigan, Michigan State, 12-27 for only 175 yards, three touchdowns, and one pick. All of those were losses. So out of his 26 touchdown passes, 11 of them came against Elon, Rice, and Southern Utah. So again, it just begs this question, can he really produce against high-level competition? So I see those numbers, and then I go back and actually watch some of the film from these games, and what I see is a little bit different story. Newman makes a lot of throws in the tightly contested windows. Why? Because his receivers can't separate. So you'll see at least three or four of these interceptions, because in his last four, in his last five games, he had six touchdowns and six interceptions. But you'll see some of these interceptions are plays where he's got a guy draped all over his receiver. He's trying to force the ball under the window against pressure. The ball gets tipped and picked. And you see a lot of that. While his numbers certainly aren't good, when you watch, you see, okay, this guy's completion percentage may have been 44% against Michigan State and 43% against Clemson. But he's putting the ball on his receivers. They either can't make catches or they can't separate to get open. And even when you watch a game like Clemson, what shocked me about that game was that fact that even though he only had 19 yards rushing, it was taking two and three, sometimes four Clemson defenders to stop him. So they would call quarterback power. He would get hit at the line of scrimmage and just drag two Clemson defenders for a no gain before he's tackled by two more. So 
even against an elite defense, he was just punishing defenders when he carries the ball. And that gave me hope that against against SEC competition and with superior offensive talent, that maybe we can maximize some things that he does well. So for UGA fans, the hope is that they can utilize his running ability, especially in design runs and short yardage, his mobility, his arm strength, and his experience to really bring out a new aspect of the offense under Todd Munkin. And there are some things that Newman doesn't do great. He does read well. He does process quickly, but he will sometimes underthrow deep balls. Even some of the ones he connects on tend to flutter, and he does force the ball into tight windows. Some of that, as we discussed, because he had receivers that weren't good at separating. He also can improve on his ball placement. Overall, his accuracy is probably better than his numbers. He was about a 60% completion rate last year. But his accuracy is probably a little bit better than that. It was hurt by some drops and some of the other issues we've said. But he doesn't always have great ball placement. There are times when he's trying to throw a slant, and instead of throwing it away from the defender, he puts it on the back hip where the defender can make a play on it. Little things like that that you can see on his film that he can definitely get better at. Just to give you a frame of reference, Newman is projected as a top 60 NFL draft pick with some people having him in the late 20s in the first round. So that's the kind of talent he is viewed as. You're going to hear people call him a great value version of Justin Fields, but I think a lot better comparison is Sam Ellinger. If you've watched Sam Ellinger's game, his running style and his ability to push the ball on the field is a really great approximation of what a UJ fan can expect to see out of Jamie Newman. And overall, UJ fans should be very excited about what they're going to get out of Newman for 2020. So, what happens when Newman leaves? After he graduates in 2021 and he goes to the NFL draft, presumably, what happens? Who takes over? Much to the shock of a lot of college football fans, a former five-star quarterback just transferred into UJ named JT Daniels. JT Daniels really has a fascinating story. So he was a five-star prospect, Gatorade Player of the Year, his junior year, because he skipped his senior year to enroll and play at USC when he should have been a senior in high school. So Daniels had a solid freshman year, not spectacular, but good at USC. Comes back to start his sophomore year. They're very excited about him. Tears his ACL in the first game. Gets replaced by Keaton Slovis, who goes on and plays great. And Daniels decides to transfer. So Daniels took a redshirt at USC last year, and he is currently a redshirt sophomore. He'll be draft eligible in 2021, but realistically, you'd expect him to sit this year behind Jamie Newman, take over as a redshirt junior, play either a year or two, and then enter the draft in 2022 or 2023, which would be his last year of eligibility. So JT Daniels played at the famous, famous modern-day high school in California. They were national champions while he was there. It's the same high school that Matt Leinart, Matt Barkley, Colt Brennan played at. They're a football factory. So when he goes in as a sophomore, is given the ability to call his own plays and then throws for 67 touchdowns, that's not a mistake, and only six interceptions, it got a lot of people's attention, and he was a consensus five-star quarterback and one of the top three quarterbacks in that class along with Fields and Lawrence. So in preparing for this, I was watching some film of JT Daniels from USC as a freshman and some of his high school highlights, and I was honestly rather underwhelmed. And so I deferred to Scott the Status Assassin, who is our recruiting guru here at Title Run Sports. He provided for me a lot of the context and history. The fact that watching JT Daniels' USC freshman highlights would have been the equivalent of watching Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields play against Power 5 competition as a senior in high school. So it adds that context. The other thing is that JT Daniels' calling card as a quarterback is accuracy, ball placement, timing, 
rhythm, and intelligence. And those are things that don't always show up really clearly when you're watching a eight-minute huddle highlight film. So a few of the things that I did like about Daniels is that he makes contested throws in a good way. He can throw the ball into tight windows, and he did so in high school. He gets the ball extremely quickly. He's a very fast processor, and he has good arm strength when he sets his feet. That said, he didn't put up great numbers as a freshman at USC. He completed right at, right around 60% of his passes, 14 touchdowns, and 10 interceptions. So it, it wasn't as if he lit the world on fire as a true freshman. We talked about how Daniels is a rhythm and timing quarterback. So when his feet are not set, his deep balls will flutter, and he looks very, very average as far as arm strength. The ball really dies coming out of his hand when he's falling back or doesn't step into throws when, when there's pressure. And you see some of his physical limitations if he can't get his feet set and drive the ball. I personally don't think JT Daniels has any chance of competing with Jamie Newman for the starting quarterback position, simply for the fact that I don't think Newman came there to compete for that spot. I think it was all but handed to him. And second of all, Newman is just a much better college quarterback than JT Daniels right now. But you have to picture JT Daniels a year from now throwing to a junior George Pickens, a junior Dominic Blaylock, plus whoever else UJ picks up in the meantime, having spent a year under Todd Munkin and having grown and matured for two years since he last stepped on the field. If you're still trying to get a good grasp on what JT Daniels' game is like, think someone like a Will Greer from West Virginia. Solid arm strength, quick processor, quick trigger, lots of production. That's kind of what you could expect from JT Daniels. Good player, probably not a Heisman contender, probably not going to be a first-round draft pick, but someone that you can build a really good offense around. Jokingly, I called uh, JT Daniel weapons grade Jake Fromm because he is what Jake Fromm would like if he had a little bit more arm strength, and that's not a bad thing. He's a smart, accurate quarterback that should be a very, very good college football player if he has the right tools around him and he plays in the right system. So assuming JT Daniels is your starting quarterback for 2021 and 2022, which in my opinion is the most likely outcome, who's next in line? This is where it gets very, very interesting for UGA. So in terms of timeline, the next guy based on graduation year should be Dwan Mathis. Now remember, when these athletes step on campus, they have a five-year clock, one year they can take as a register, and then four years to actually play the sport. So for Dwan Mathis, he has four years of eligibility remaining because he was registered last year due to his brain surgery. So he's eligible for the draft in 2022, but he could, in theory, play all the way up to 2024. Mathis will be in a heated competition with Carson Beck, who just arrived on campus in January, who is draft eligible in 2023, and assuming he redshirts, would be on campus until 2025. And then, of course, there's Brock Vandegrift, the five-star prospect that's coming in for the 2021 class, one of the top quarterbacks in the country. He would be draft eligible for 2024, with his last eligible year being 2020. 2026, assuming he redshirts, which is probably not likely for him. So essentially, UJ's quarterback situation looks like this. You have Jamie Newman, who I believe is a lock to start the 2020 season. He graduates. JT Daniels steps in as a redshirt junior, plays that year, possibly a second year. And then you're trying to decide between Dwan Mathis, four-star to Michigan, Carson Beck, a four-star to Florida, and Brock Vandegrift, the number two quarterback in the 2021 class, and a five-star recruit. Let me give you just a quick breakdown of each of these players' strengths and weaknesses if you haven't seen them play. So for Dwan Mathis, he was a three-sport athlete coming out of high school in Michigan. He had really good times in track, a 10-8-400, which means he's probably a state placer in most states. 
Uh, and he was also a very, very good basketball player. And he didn't do a lot of the camps that some of these other quarterbacks did that probably would have increased his recruiting profile. But when you watch his film, he is good footwork, a super quick release. He's very accurate on the run. And I was fortunate enough to get to see him in person at UJ Spring Practice in 2019. The first thing I noticed was that he was a giant. He is all of 6'6". And the second thing I noticed, I didn't necessarily notice on his film, and I didn't know his track times at that at that point. I was shocked at how fast he was. During their team session, he pulled down a ball and took off scrambling and was blowing by defenders. He was a fantastic athlete, and he probably has the most pure physical upside of any quarterback in this entire five-year cycle that we're covering for UJ football, and that's saying a lot. Now, Mathis wasn't the kind of player that was ready to start as a freshman. He still has a lot to learn in terms of processing, and he makes a lot of contested throws. He threw a lot of jump balls in high school, so things like that, but he was a good passer in high school. That needs to be said, and Mathis isn't one of these unpolished kids. It's just an athlete back there running around. He is a quarterback that stands tall and delivers the ball, and I think a lot of people are writing him off with the brain injury, and then the signings of Carson Beck and Vandergriff. And I'm just telling you, this kid was going to Ohio State for a reason. He has some physical tools that are hard to find, and I think he legitimately is going to be in the mix to be the starting quarterback whenever JT Daniels leaves. What will be very telling in all this is whether or not Carson Beck receives a red shirt. Beck enrolled in January of this year, and if he receives a red shirt, that's an indication to me that Dewan Mathis is ahead of him in the depth chart and has the inside track on being the successor to JT Daniels. The problem with that is, if you redshirt Carson Beck, you're bringing him into the same class with Brock Vandegrift. So then essentially you'd have him being a redshirt freshman in 2021 and Brock Vandegrift being a true freshman in 2021. So then, do you redshirt Vandegrift to get them out of the same class? And if you do, does he transfer? It's hard to say because both Beck and Vandegrift come in with great accolades and great talent. Beck was the Florida Player of the Year on a state championship team. He's got a great physical profile, six foot four and a half and 224 pounds. So he's a, a big, strong kid. He's got great arm strength. He's got very good mobility. And he's played a lot of high-level winning football. Vandegriff is the number two quarterback in the class of 2021. He is a true blue chipper that appears to have all the tools. He's a very, very good runner. He gets the ball quickly. He's He's got good arm strength. He's got a five-star composite rating on 247, which is our website of choice when it comes to recruiting. But in his case, he has not played a lot of high-level competition. He plays single-A private football here in Georgia for a very, very successful program. And What's funny is my next-door neighbor I found out about two months ago is actually his quarterback's coach at his high school. And I remember talking with him about Vandergriff's recruiting and why he chose to drop Oklahoma and go to Georgia. And it had to do with the fact that his father is the head football coach at Prince Avenue, and he wants to be able to see his son play. And Brock wants his parents to be able to see him play. He realized that if he goes to school like Oklahoma and his dad, who coaches football every Friday night, is tied to that program, he can't travel cross-country to see his son play on a Saturday in Norman, Oklahoma. So staying close to home was a big part of his choice, and they were also excited about the addition of Todd Munkin to the UJ staff, as they're hoping he'll bring in some elements into the UJ offense that will really highlight what Brock does well. So what's the most likely outcome? It may help to answer that by establishing the least likely outcome. 
the least likely outcome is that all five of these quarterbacks actually stay and play for UGA. Again, elite quarterback prospects don't stay in school and wait their turn. The question is, who's going to leave? In my opinion, the most likely scenario is that one of either Beck or Mathis transfers during 2021. Since JT Daniels is most likely the starting quarterback in 2021, whoever loses the competition for backup between Mathis and Beck is the one that I think is most likely to transfer. If you're Mathis and Beck wins that spot, you're never going to play. You're going to be a backup because Beck is either going to be one class beneath you and the starter or in the same class as you and the starter. In either case, does not leave you a way to get on the field. So if Beck wins the starting spot, Mathis is clearly gone. If Mathis wins a starting spot, Beck could wait, but since he will at best be one year behind Mathis, that's assuming he redshirts, then he's probably waiting a minimum of two years to get on the field, and now he's in the same class as Brock Vandegrift. And so he has another competition that he has to win once Mathis is gone. So what UJ is doing in recruiting all these blue trip prospects is setting it up so that they have an elite quarterback prospect for every graduation year for the next five years. And that's what you do. Get the talent in there, let them battle it out, and let the chips fall where they may. And if you lose a transfer or even two, you still have a room full of blue chippers left that can take the spot. Bring it full circle, what they're essentially doing is ensuring that there is never another situation like this year where blue chipper Justin Fields leaves and you don't have someone to replace him with. UJ is correcting the mistake they made this past year, saying we're going to stockpile as many high-level quarterbacks as we can. That way, if we lose one, we still have a room full of talented players at that position. Now, moving from college quarterbacks to the NFL, we won't usually talk about other teams besides Atlanta Falcons, but the Cam Newton story was too big to ignore. And I had some people ask me this question this week. What do you think about Cam going to the Patriots? Do you think it could work out? My short answer is yes. And here's why. In 2007, Randy Moss came to the Patriots at age 30. He was coming off the worst season of his career in Oakland where he was miserable. 553 receiving yards, three touchdowns. He was considered an attitude problem. People thought he had lost his elite speed. New England was seen as kind of a last-ditch chance for him to revive his career. Randy Moss wanted to catch 23 touchdown passes in 2007, setting an NFL record as the Patriots Famously went 17-1, losing in the Super Bowl to the New York Giants. In his three years with the Patriots, his age 30, 31, and 32 seasons, he caught 47 touchdown passes, leading the league in touchdowns twice. Corey Dillon is another player who came to the Patriots at age 30, and 34 a running back is like 105 in regular human years. So Dillon comes to the Patriots on the heels of a 541-yard season, by far the worst rushing season of his career. He's 30, and the assumption is, okay, after all the years of taking a pounding in Cincinnati, he's over the hill, he's done. Dylan goes on to rush for a career-high 1,635 yards and 12 touchdowns and winning a Super Bowl with the Patriots. So, when people ask me, can an injured, beat-up Cam Newton go to New England and be successful there? My answer is, of course he can. This is a New England team that won their first Super Bowl in a game where Tom Brady threw for 130 yards. This is a team that won 11 games when Tom Brady tore his ACL and Matt Castle was their starter. 
So you mean to tell me this franchise can't take a 31-year-old former MVP and get him to play complimentary football with one of the league's best defenses to help them be a 10-win team and make the playoffs? That's crazy to me. Cam Newton won an MVP throwing to Greg Olson and Ted Ginn as his top targets. England is going to do everything they can to accentuate his strengths, protect him because, remember, for the last 20 years they've had a complete statue quarterback, and to make sure it's not on Cam to win games. Because if you watched New England last year, they weren't relying on Tom Brady to win games. Brady finished the year as the number 19th rated quarterback, number 17 in QBR, and he had the lowest completion percentage he's had since 2004. The Tom Brady you saw last year wasn't 2016 Tom Brady. He was a quarterback that was clearly in decline, and he was no longer playing like an elite quarterback. And I know that seems blasphemous to say about the guy that is pretty much universally considered the GOAT, but if Cam Newton plays like even a top 15 quarterback, he's giving you more than what Tom Brady gave you last season. In Cam's last healthy season, which was 2018, he completed a career-high 68% of his passes, 24 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, and had a 94 quarterback rating. So if you get that out of Cam, or close to that, New England will have the most valuable non-rookie quarterback contract in the entire league. As for the concerns about Cam's personality and his flamboyance, a former player of mine has played the last two seasons with the Carolina Panthers, and when I asked him about Cam Newton, his response was, he's a great teammate, but he's weird. (laughs) Good dude, super weird. So that leaves me to believe that some of the stuff about Cam's personality and flamboyance is probably a bit overhyped. And for New England, this is very simple. If he doesn't work out with New England, they cut him and they play Jarrett Stidham. And they have behind Jarrett Stidham, Brian Hoyer as your breaking case of emergency option. And again, while those aren't sexy options, this team won 11 games at Matt Castle at quarterback. Bill Belichick does not need an elite quarterback to be competitive. So Cam offers zero risk and super high reward if he plays at anything close to his MVP level. So I think the Cam Newton signing is a slam dunk. I think it's going to give him a chance to rehabilitate his career. I think he will rehabilitate his career. And I believe he could very well end up being New England's starter for the next several years. So that's it for today. I know we just covered a lot. This is Dave Bethay for the Title Run Podcast. Thank you for listening.